0: I'm Kat Seiler, the Director of Adult Ministries here, and it's an absolute honor to have you join us on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, As we get the service started, if you would please stand, we're gonna start things off by joining our hearts together in praying the Lord's Prayer. Will you pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever amen father god we thank you for this beautiful beautiful morning for this opportunity to gather together uh, with other believers and to just come take a moment and quiet our hearts quiet our souls and to just truly focus on you We ask a blessing on Pastor Scott as he delivers today's message. And we ask that those words and the the lessons that are taught today, allow that to permeate our, our lives and our hearts, that we may take that out into the world to do your work. We give this time up to you and we do this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.
1: Good morning, church. Are we ready to worship our king today? that pursues us so relentlessly today.
2: Focus on the Lord this morning and worship him. alone. When those who are weak today lift it up. are hoping for God everything that we are not uh, we just press into you for the answers because uh, truly everything that we need is found in Jesus this morning and so we just place you at the center of it all we thank you so much for your presence being here Jesus we thank you that you are our steady and sure foundation this morning, you are consistency when the storms of life just come and, uh, try to wipe us out. And I know for so many that are hurting today, uh, just the unexpected, um, the things that are are hurtful and and uh, just tragedies, in general, Lord. Um, there's sometimes there's not even a prayer that we can pray, uh, just to call on the name of Jesus and know that you truly are our hope this morning. So when our faith is shaken, um, God, I pray that we would just grab a hold of you, not fade away and not give up, but truly just press in and say, Jesus, even if that's all we can pray, just Jesus, we need you to show up. God, we truly love you. We thank you so much for being here. Uh, Help us to trust more in your strength and your grace as we look to you for all things and bless this service as Pastor Scott comes to deliver the word this morning. We are yours this morning. We love you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks everyone for singing and worshiping with us. Turn around and find someone to greet, say hello to them. Maybe someone you don't typically get to welcome. And then you can be seated after that if you're watching online. We're so glad you're here. We'll be right back. Before Pastor Scott comes up to deliver a wonderful message this morning, um, last weekend we had the opportunity Uh, to have a sunset baptism service. It was absolutely incredible. We baptized 75 people, y'all. Oh, It was truly, uh, it was such a special moment and so remarkable. But for those of you who did not have the opportunity to see that, we wanted to do something special for you. So we put together a video so you can uh, celebrate with us in all of the baptisms and hope you enjoy it this morning.
3: see all the faces. I've, I've seen that video 10 times. And um, just so excited about what God is doing in the lives and the hearts of people. Yes, individuals, but entire families whose existence has been changed as a result of you, this church, the work that God is doing in their lives. And can we give them all one more big round of applause? Just fantastic. I tell you, I, I like to consider us a full service church. And so let me just tell you what happened on Sunday. So just like in the story with Jesus, baptized, comes up out of the water, and then Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After we baptized people, we sent them up on the beach, they were immediately attacked by biting flies. It was like plague worthy. It was insane. So everybody, we took them and we let them have the most biblical feel ever when they were attacked by Satan. Those things are evil. I'm just, just saying right now. So uh, you immediately had your faith tested and um, we're so proud. Well, Good morning. I hope everybody's doing good this morning. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us today at Community Life Church on this beautiful Sunday morning. My name is Scott Verno, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and it's an honor to have you here in our family room or to have you joining us online. It means the world to us that you would take time out of your schedule to just be here, to be present, and, um, and so thank you for that. At Community Life, we love God, we love our neighbor, and we believe that our mission is to connect people to Jesus because we believe that Jesus is the source of life. And our hope is that when you discover the source of life, that yes, you'll hold on to it, which you're going to take and share it with every single person you encounter. And um, we would consider it our high honor to be able to stand alongside you in the journey to be able to do that. So, So thank you for being here. Um, a couple quick announcements, and then we're going we're gonna to jump into part four of our, of our series today. So last week, we talked about um, this upcoming event for women's ministry called The Gathering. It's on October 13th. It's a Friday night, and the women are going to come together, and you're going to have dinner, worship. Uh, you're going to have a, a guest speaker. Her name is Casey Jordan, and she's an author. She wrote Incognito, Discovering God in the Everyday Moments. It's going to be a fabulous night. Um, there's a cost that's associated with it, $25.00. That's to cover the cost of everything that's going on that night, but I'm going to tell you it's going to be amazing. Here's something I didn't tell you last week, ladies, is that the food is being provided by five sisters. Yeah, ooh, to me, I was like, yeah, I'll take care of that. I'm so excited. So $25, that's going to be well worth it. If if it's a challenge for you to pay the $25, don't worry about it. We had some folks that donated some scholarship money last week. If you're here today and you'd like to help provide scholarship money, you can still do that. We want no barriers to stand in the way of you being able to experience community and find that connection. Um, So make sure that you go ahead and get registered for that. The second announcement is directly connected to that night. So Five Sisters is providing the food, but guess who gets to serve it? You. We. I do. We get to serve it. So somewhere in my life, I learned how to be a pastor by waiting on tables, which means I also get to be a pastor by waiting on tables. So um, when Fit Thursday rolls around or when the gathering rolls around, um, the guys get together and we serve. And and here's what I would ask you. Sometimes you find yourself in church and you think, God, I, I wanna serve you. There are things that I wanna do in life, but I don't know what I have to offer. If you spend any time in the food service industry, I wanna know who you are because I have to serve 240, 250 plated meals. And if you've never done that, then you know. Well, no, you don't know. If you have done that, you know how challenging that is. So if you've worked any, in any of those worlds, um, somehow come grab me, connect with me. Uh, we're gonna have, my brother Tom and I, we worked at the Hilton down at Disney World for, for 15 years in banquets. And so we know how to feed people, move people, but he's gonna anchor the kitchen, I'm gonna anchor the floor out here, and we need people that know how to plate and move numbers of people. So if that's you, let me know, we'll get you connected. The other announcement kind of connects to it Um, We have many wonderful, amazing photographers here in the church, and we have almost burned them all to the ground for Jesus. Uh, Every different event that we have, we try to capture those images. I mean, you saw the pictures. They're incredible. Our photographers, they are like full contact photographers. They get right out in there, into the middle of the splash zone just to get the best shot. And so we need to bolster that list to get a few more in. And so if you have that ability, we would love to connect you to Mia, mia at clc.life. Um, reach out to her. But Mia has an idea for next year on how we can best um, move forward in this. Because we know that there are many people who you, you look at taking um, photos or photography as a hobby, or maybe you're looking to create an extra line of income. She's budgeted for next year four different events where we will bring in professionals that will walk alongside you to teach you, to train you, to help you understand capturing, framing, all of those different things. And we want to be able to, to gift that back into you as you stand alongside and you join us in this gift of photography. So consider that. Um, we'd love to sew that back into your life. And maybe you find a way to make some extra money on the side, but then be able to join the church and help us take pictures. So if, if that speaks to you, reach out to me, at clc.life, and, um, and we'll all get connected. Okay, so um, today is part four in our series The Gospel According to Matthew, and it was going to be the last in the series, but I'm going to tell you it is impossible to teach 28 chapters of anything in four weeks. So we've added an extra week, and um, I figured out how to knock this thing around to where we could shake it out and and be able to land the plane by next week. But what we're doing is we're studying the gospel according to Matthew, and we're looking at what makes Matthew's gospel unique. So as a church, we believe there is one gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. But that gospel is given to us through the lens of four different authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of them gives us a different um, nuance, view, um, perspective as to what Jesus looks like. And I think it's in the entirety of all four that we understand and grab a hold of the best understanding of who Jesus is, so going through and dividing up Matthew and looking at what, why Matthew writes what he does, how he writes it, helps us to understand it and, and better, really, to see and recognize Jesus. So, um, so things you need to know about Matthew, and we're going to quickly go through this so we can jump into the message. We believe that Matthew was the disciple of Jesus, the tax collector that you read about in Scripture, and we know that to be 100%... Maybe the truth, we don't know if it's 100% true, he doesn't sign his gospel, but the earliest church recollections and records indicate that these writings were attributed to Matthew. Now Matthew is the most Jewish of the, of the biblical narratives because um, of his audience that he was writing to and because he was a tax collector. So the early church used Matthew's gospel primarily over all of the others, probably because most of the early church was Jewish. And so it made most sense to them, the way that Matthew wrote it connected to them. And, and that was primarily what they used. Now you may say, Scott, how did he put together his gospel account? Um, biblical scholars believe that he started with the gospel of Mark, which was the first gospel written, used that as the baseline. And then he used other writings that were in antiquity that captured the sayings of Jesus. He, mo- he pulled those into his gospel account. Then Matthew used his own journey and his understanding of the stories to flesh out the rest and to connect all the dots in all of it. And then he wrote it to his context. Now, some, of the, some people ask and wonder, when did he write this? Um, most people believe after 70 AD. 70 AD is when the temple was destroyed. Why do they believe that? Because of the narratives that go through the middle of his gospel. Two things that you can tell that are really highlighted in Matthew's gospel. One is Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience So he wants them to know that in order to believe in Jesus, you are not abandoning your faith, that you actually can understand and believe in Jesus and see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. So you can hold on to Jesus and hold on to your Jewish roots and know that they're all connected. So that's primary source for Matthew going forward. The second thing that Matthew does is he connects the Gentile understanding through the scripture. And it wasn't just a tag-on that he did at the end. He starts it at the very beginning with the understanding of Abraham, the father of many nations, and uses that promise of Abraham's life to open the door for the Gentiles all throughout his gospel. So those two threads run right through the heart of his gospel message. Now, over these last three weeks, um, we've started and we've gone from chapter one all the way to chapter 10. And so let me quickly paraphrase those for you. If you wanna look at chapters one through four, what Matthew does is he establishes the truth of who Jesus is so that you don't just think Jesus showed up out of nowhere and nobody knows who this guy is. And so in chapters one through four, Matthew uses genealogy, prophecy. He actually uses the stars. Think of the Magi seeing a star in the sky. He uses the stars. He uses history, personal testing of Jesus being approved through the testing and the heavens open up and God even speaking himself to prove that Jesus Is who he says he is. And so when you get to chapter four, um, get through chapter four, then it doesn't matter your background. There is something in those first four chapters that tells you that Jesus was predicted and now he shows up and there's a purpose for his life. And so last week we dove into chapter five through seven, actually five through 10, and we looked at what his teaching was all about. And so we dove into the, the Sermon on the Mount to find out who this Jesus was. And really, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, there's two things that I think bear remembrance. The first one is that the Sermon on the Mount and all that Jesus says was designed to to bring us to a place of transformation. That for Jesus, it wasn't enough that we just look righteous. He wanted us to do the work so that at the place of our heart and in our lives that we were righteous. He says, "Um, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. Well, I say to you, don't even be angry with your brother or sister. And so Jesus gives us a a deeper understanding of transformation in our lives that it's not just enough to look, or it's not just enough to not murder your brother. You should not hate your brother. Allow it to be the ethic by which you live and you function in life. The second part of the message that we looked at was the crowd that Jesus was ministering to. That as he looked out upon the crowd, he noticed that these people are like sheep without a shepherd. And the, the crazy distinction there is that there were people that should have been meeting their needs. The, the, the Israelites had a functioning system of religious practices that should have been taking care of these people, but Jesus is looking out at this wide swath of people and he's like, you're a sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus responds, and what does he do? He raises up disciples and he sends them out. And that's chapter 10, which is really our place in the world today. That as we look at the people outside these doors, Uh, They're getting attacked from the outside. They're getting attacked from inside the church. And our place is to love them, to shepherd them, and to raise up, to allow the transformation to happen in our lives, and to go out there and be the shepherds that lead and guide them towards a purposeful understanding of who Jesus is and really to connect them to Jesus. So you can find yourself right there in the heart of the message last week, which now gets us to today. So knowing that I couldn't land the plane in four weeks, pushed it out to five weeks, I had to consider... What I could give you today, so that if you wanted to go back into Matthew, that would help you to understand his writing from the larger perspective. And what you need to know about Matthew is he captures Jesus' teachings in discourse form. So Matthew will take and put his, like the Sermon on the Mount, that's a discourse. He put those together in chapters, and then he bridges one discourse to another with The movement of Jesus to one place, to another, healing miracles, the things that happened that really proved the teaching that was there. But then there would be another discourse. And so if you were to go through and study Matthew, you would find the teaching discourse, that's chapters five through seven. The mission discourse, that's where he sends the disciples out, that's in chapter 10. That's where he tells them what to expect, that's where he tells them what to bring with them. And then the the parable discourse, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. He has this whole series of, of parables that he delivers, that's chapter 13. And then the community discourse, that's chapter 18, that's what we're going to look at today. And then finally, the apocalyptic discourse in chapters 24 and 25, where he talks about the end and how it all comes together, followed by the the passion narrative that comes on the heels of those. And so if you just look at them, that's how he writes, using discourses. So if you dive back in, you can get into those chapters, read those teachings, and then on the either side of them, you'll find how Matthew either puts in stories that that speak to that teaching or fulfills that teaching, but that's how he writes his, his gospel narrative. So today we're going to focus on the community discourse, chapter 18, and next week we're going to look at the passion narrative and we're going to land this plane and we're going to move on into our next series. But if you want to read ahead next week, verse, chapters 26, 27, and 28, what is it about the passion narrative that's different that Matthew writes? How can we see it through his eyes? And what was the message that he was trying to deliver to us? And, and so we're going to tackle that. But this week... I thought as I went through all of them, we, we could have chosen any of the discourses. But I decided since we are community life church that we should study the community discourse. See how I did that? It's like using, using my hollow noggin to make decisions. Um, and uh, here's the setup for the chapter. Chapter 18 is really established to tell us as believers how we are to be together. How do we operate? How do we treat one another? And it's established off of two questions. And in the teaching, he gives us multiple ethics as to how to answer those questions. So the two questions are this. The first one is, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And so that's the first question that the disciples ask Jesus. And then he explains and answers that question. The second question is, if my brother or sister offends me, how often do I forgive them? And so those are the two big questions that Matthew uses to set this chapter up. And in between them is the most pa- practical teaching on um, problem resolution that you're going to find anywhere else. And he gives that to us. Now, before we read, I, I want to say this, because I think this bears mentioning. This text, the way Matthew writes this, is written for believers. It's written for believers so that we can self-govern and understand how to be in community together. So as believers, if you're a believer, listen to the message and see how you're doing. And how you can shift, how you can understand, how you can adjust to what it is Jesus says. If you're not a believer, that doesn't mean you're like, this is nothing for you. If you're not a believer, I challenge you to listen to this and then let me know later how we're doing. Give me a score. I can take it. I've got thick skin. Let me know if we're actually as believers living into this. My hope is always going to be that you become a believer because I think it's better for your life. But I'd love to know what you think about how we're doing because it'll speak volumes it's easy for a pastor to become blind to the things that he sees because I'm always around it. So a fresh set of eyes helps. And, um, and so I just encourage you to maybe consider the message in that way. You guys ready to dive in? And I also, uh, yes, you are. And I will also say, um, I'm just stoked about this message. Last night, uh, and I, Robin's here, I called Robin last night and ran some stuff by him. And I'm like, ah, oh, there's so much. There's something else to it. There's something else to it. There's something else to it. About 12, 15 last night, I got it. And until t- about two o'clock, I just sat down and continued to write. So I got it. Guess who's going to get it today?
4: <laughs>
3: and then guess who's going to bed Uh huh. right after this service is over. So I'm so excited. I'll go ahead and set the expectation. You're going to hear something that you've read many, many times. And I hope it shapes your understanding of community in a completely different way. So Matthew chapter 18, Matthew writes, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus. So these are the disciples generating these questions. And they asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now reading that question, it would be easy if you were just reading through it to think they were asking the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? As in heaven, not here, but heaven on the other side. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I need to remind you that Matthew is Jewish and no Jewish person would ever write the kingdom of God. Anytime I send an email back and forth to Rabbi Tokajer and he responds to me, he would never write G-O-D. He would write G with a hyphen and then D because out of respect, they would never write the name of God. And so for him, when he says kingdom of heaven, he doesn't mean the afterlife. He means this life. He's talking about the presence of God. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's, That's the question that Matthew is putting forward through the disciples. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Verse two, Jesus, he called, Jesus is the one that calls him. He says, he called a child whom he put among them and said. Now, this is important. And this is the biggest challenge you will always have when reading scripture, that you've got to do the work to understand the context of what you're dealing with. So the way that we think about our children today isn't exactly the same as the way they thought about their children then. I'm just going to tell you, we love our children a lot, and they love their children a lot. But in many cases, we elevate our children above most anything and everything else in life. Sometimes even above our understanding of God, that they take deference and their things they want to do will keep them out of scenarios where, that are better for them, maybe script church, whatever. And I'm, I'm chief among that, right? The way that we elevate our children and the way that we sometimes honor them. We have... Helicopter moms, we have smothers, we have all those things. We have fathers that are living vicariously through their children. We just view children differently. So let me explain for you how they viewed children during the time. So a child in antiquity had no standing, no power. Their greatest value was to the family. And their only place to find purpose and name and and an ability to live in life was inside the family. They had a total and complete dependence upon the father and upon the family. And that family was to stand alongside them, love them, nurture them. But when Jesus stood that child in front of them, he, it wasn't the way that we would view that child. He would have stood somebody in front of them that had no standing in life. And so this was a sermon lesson that he would have been delivering for them. And so you kind of have to put your mind in a place with a person who had total and complete dependence on their father for their name and for their purpose in life. And then he answers the question by giving us three different understandings. Here we go. And he says to them, truly I tell you, unless you change or unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So his answer to who's the greatest is to start off by talking how you about how you enter into the kingdom of heaven and he says this weird phrase he says unless you turn or unless you change now you can think of the word repent but it's a bigger topic jesus is not saying unless you turn and become like this child what he's saying is unless you change the context of your question because the original intent of their question is who's the greatest who has the most power who has the most influence And so Jesus is saying, you're missing the point. Unless you change your question and change your heart, you'll never understand and you'll never be be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is not about you establishing power or who has the power. This is about you elevating others and lifting up those who have no power. It's the purpose and the design of Jesus' life to come save those who couldn't save themselves. So you have to turn your understanding. It's not about being the greatest. It's about being the least and it's about lifting up those who are powerless. And so he's establishing that truth using a child. Verse four, he says, whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's other scripture that says, have the faith of a child. But in this instance, he says, whoever becomes humble like this child. Now, I'm gonna tell you, you, it's impossible for us to go back. Well, some of us can revert and act like children, um, but not in the right way. But but to go back and to be humble like a child, I think it's, it's more important to recognize the understanding of a child as being totally dependent upon the father and recognizing that our place is not to go out and to earn our place. Our place is to find our connection inside the family. And so when he says, whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you have to understand the one who learns, grows, find their connection in the faith, find their connection in the family with a total dependence on the father. That makes sense? And then verse five. He says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And so if he wasn't serious enough, he wants you to know that if you welcome one of these, then you're welcoming me. So Jesus puts his name right on the line and connects himself with the least of these or those who are powerless or those who have no standing apart from the family. And he makes it paramount for us to understand that he's serious about this. So this is a way for us to understand how we interact, how we hold faith, our dependence upon the Father, our dependence on the Father to find our purpose and our design in life, and our best place is to be connected to that family. And so he establishes those truths about who's the greatest. But then in verse six, he transitions back to the disciples to talk about how, as disciples, we are to treat and move forward with these these ones that are in front of us. He says, if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones, and let let me stop right there, He changes the way that he talks. No longer is he talking about a child. He's created a metaphor that he was talking about with the child. Now he's using the term little one. He says, if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Isn't that kind? Right, I mean, you read that and you're like, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Where's the unicorns and rainbows, right? Like it's sometimes, not sometimes, Jesus spoke the truth. And I'm telling you, he is serious about how we raise up love and care for those who are in our care in the faith. He says, if you're gonna put a stumbling block in front of one of them, it's not gonna be a good day for you. He doesn't tell us what he's gonna do. He just lets you know that it would be better for you to be drowned out than for you to willingly do this. Verse seven, he says, woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. He's like, oh, don't worry, I'm gonna take care of them. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. Can Jesus be more clear in the fact that we should not stand in the way of believers coming to know God or growing in their faith? It's very, very clear in the way that we are supposed to interact with one another. Verses eight, nine, and 10, or eight and nine, it, I would tell you it's hyperbole. He says, if your, hand, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Jesus was not telling people to cut off their hands or their feet. It's not what he was saying. He's just letting you know that you've got to work this stuff out. If you are stumbling, you've got to remove those barriers from your life. You have to be serious about getting them out of the way. That's the level of detail that he goes to to let us know that he wants to remove the impediments. And then in verse 10, he moves on. Once again, speaking to the disciples, relating to them, the ones that are in their care. He says, take care that you do not despise one of the little ones. When I read this a couple days ago, I went, oh. Because how many times in my life have I been frustrated that new believers who keep making the same mistakes over and over, or people that have been believing for a long time that have never grown up and you're like, come on, start eating meat, let's go. Right? Like there's bigger things that you should be doing in life. And Jesus says, take care that you do not despise. I care about them, I love them. He says, for I tell you, and this is interesting, this is a cultural reference. I tell you in heaven, their angels continually see the face of my father in heaven. Now there was a theology and a belief during that time that children had guardian angels that interceded on their behalf to the father. Um, It's just one of the cultural beliefs that they had Then infant mortality rate was high. Children sometimes weren't named until later on in life. And so they just trusted that the angels would care for them, right? And so what Jesus is saying is, is listen, culture will tell you that we believe that these children have angels that stare into the face of God. So be careful what you say because they're interceding. And if you're getting in their way, God himself, the father is going to know about it. Verse 12, he says, what do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. And then he gives us the ethic by which we should live with inside of our communities. He says, So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. And so what Jesus says to them is is if there's a scenario where somebody has drifted and gotten off the path, it is the heart of the Father that you go get them. He does not want to lose a single one. You pursue them. You love them. You reach out to them. You do everything you can to bring them back. So just if you start with that very first question, who's the greatest, he flips it on its head. He causes us to look at it different. It's about how you elevate love and care for and value the family and our total dependence on God and finding our identity and our place in this world. Don't put obstacles. Don't be the one that's, gonna, that's going to um, despise the way that we love and we care for one another. God cares about us so much that if one drifts off, we should go get that person. So that he establishes that truth. That's, that's the first part of the scenario. Now I'm gonna skip over verses 15 down through 20. And I'm going to pick up the second question in verse 21. Now, one of the things that I love about Peter is that um, Peter is, reminds me a lot of many of us in church that if we open our mouth, pretty soon we're going to stick our foot right in it. Amen. We have a lot of those people around. I'm, I'm one of those that I, I do it oftentimes. Peter, in this question, he immediately offers an answer. And, and I'm, I can't speak to the motives of his heart, but he, he He asks a question that he knows the answer to, or at least he thinks he does, and and it's going to make him sound good. None of us would ever do that, right, to the teacher. But that's exactly what Peter does. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? I have an answer. As many as seven times, which was a great answer, because to them, seven was the number of perfection. It's above and beyond anything that they would have ever been expected. And Peter probably expected Jesus to go, that's awesome. And Jesus was probably like, good try, buddy. Um, I'm going to take this a little deeper. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you 77 times. Now we don't understand the cultural reference, but in the Old Testament, there was a means by which you could receive vengeance. Remember the scripture, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? And there were cities that you could go and you could find refuge in. And there was all that there. Jesus checks every bit of that. And he says, "Uh uh-uh, it's the heart of the father that you forgive, 77 times. So he even takes it beyond the narrative of what um, Peter says, and he takes it to eternity to let you know that this should be the heart. This should be what governs us um, going forward. Then he gets into a parable. And I love this parable. And you've got to understand it with the real numbers in it so that it'll make sense. So verse 23 Jesus is speaking and he says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now we hear 10,000 talents and we go, oh, that sounds like a lot. Let me tell you how much that is. So um, one talent is worth more than 15 years wages. So to owe 10,000 talents is to owe 150,000 years of wages. That's a lot. Can we all agree that that's a lot? That's not a debt that any of us could pay. Not this joker, not anybody. Jesus is trying to make a point. He uses an absurd number to make a point. So this person that owes 150,000 years worth of wages was brought to him. And as he And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and his children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt, probably because he knew he could never pay it. Verse 28. But the same slave as he went out came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a hundred denarii, that sounds like a big number. A hundred denarii is four months wages. Now that's, that's not nothing, but it's not 150,000 years worth of that salary, right? So this guy owes him 150, or 100 denarii. He seizes him by the throat and says, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience, same thing, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. So my heavenly father will do also to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That sounds like more unicorns and rainbows. This is a real happy message, right? I mean, it's hard. It's hard to hear this. It's hard to reconcile this. And it's easy if you could go through and read this. And it sounds like um, some people have interpreted this that if you're not willing to forgive, God's gonna throw you in hell. That's not what he says. He says that he will hand you over to be tortured until you pay the entire debt. There are people who are unable to forgive, that are experiencing in their life the brokenness, the hurt, the resentment because they can't get to that place or because they're not willing to forgive. And there's an an understanding that God gives us in forgiveness. And I'll tell you a lot of it is because I believe we've taught this message all wrong. So let me just hit the surface of what Jesus is saying. And then I wanna dive into forgiveness a little bit. So the surface message is this. That if you're a believer, then what you have been forgiven in your life far exceeds anything you can ever pay. 150,000 lifetimes or 150,000 years to ever pay. And there's no way that we ever could. It's that extreme of a number that you could never pay for the debt. And there will be people that will offend you and hurt you in life. And he doesn't minimize the hurt. There's a cost. There is a hurt, that's an offense that's been associated with it. He doesn't minimize that. But he says, for you, for your sake, for the sake of the community. We have to be willing to have the heart of the Father and be willing to forgive. And so Jesus says, this is the expectation that you will do that for the whole, for reconciliation, for healing, for hope, so that we can move forward together. So just for the sake of of being clear about this, I wanna talk for a moment about what forgiveness is not and what forgiveness is. And so forgiveness is not shoving it down deep and saying, I'm fine. I'm okay. I don't ever want to talk about it again. Don't bring it up. I'm fine. I forget about it. I don't even want anything to do it. That That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is also not, and this is of the utmost importance, it is not dismissing a behavior or allowing someone to continue to abuse and cause further offense to you. That is not forgiveness. Please hear me say that. Here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is a conscious decision to let go of the resentment towards an individual or an organization that has hurt, wronged, or offended you, and choosing to allow yourself to transform those feelings, attitudes, or behaviors so that you do not sink into, get trapped into resentment and bitterness, and making space, so allowing those feelings to transform into feelings of maybe compassion that God can give you, generosity that God can give you, self-love that God can give you, and you may say, why? So that you can relate differently to the person who offended you. Please hear me. You no longer have to be the one that is abused. And you no longer have to be the victim. You have the ability to change the seat that you're sitting in. And what I would say to you is that Jesus on the cross He was not a victim because Jesus' heart was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When Jesus was on the cross, he was a savior taking upon himself what we could not pay for ourselves. He did not take the seat of one who held resentment against us, but he took the seat as one who could bear that offense and carry it for us. In fact, the only one that could, he did it with a heart of forgiveness. And so I'm not minimizing hurt. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing the hurt that you have in your lives. And the church has not done good. We've asked you to take a licking and keep on ticking. And I'm telling you, it's not fair. It's not right. You remove yourself away from the offender and you find it in your heart to, to find a pattern. Celebrate Recovery is so good at this, of how you can find healing and find freedom in your life. And you can move to a place of restoration in your own life to where you can figure out how to do, what to do with that next. Is all that a little bit helpful Okay, I, I, it's, I try to be so cautious in talking about that because so many people carry offenses and it's doing you more damage and you're hoping that it would do to the other person, but really it just degrades us inside and breaks us down when God's heart is to offer forgiveness and to find freedom in our own lives. And then, and I've got to move quickly, then between these two pieces, seeing ourselves as children, total dependence on the father, our place in the family, learning how to forgive, even sometimes the the unforgivable things, learning how to find that place in our lives. In the middle of these two understandings is this very practical nature of how we find our being and solve and work through issues and problems. Verses 15 through 20. And it's at the end of this where I find, I think, what is the final message that I want to deliver to you today. He says, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are what? Notice he doesn't say, go and post it on Facebook. That'd be pretty insightful for him to write that, but Jesus would have known. He doesn't say, go blurt it out. He says, go get the other person and talk to them. And and, and he gives you the reason why. He says, if the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others, Along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Why do you do that? Because you need to also make sure that you're right in your thinking and that there's accountability and there's understanding and that there's, there's wisdom in the voices that are gathered around. So the the the, the position of, of what God has done in life to lead to a place of healing and reconciliation. That's what this is all about. Verse 17. If the member refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. He uses the word ecclesia, the gathering. Tell it to the gathering. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, this is powerful beyond belief. He says, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. For years, I've taught this or thought about this as in we put them out. But I'm gonna ask you a question and I had to repent for this. How did Jesus teach, treat the Gentiles and the tax collectors? He loved them, he ate with them, he always reached out to them. I want you to know that what what Jesus is teaching is, you take a person that is offending you, you try to bring them to a place of reconciliation, but if they won't, you remove them from the place to where they can no longer offend, but you always keep an opportunity to bring reconciliation. That's the heart of God. That's what he teaches us inside this. So there's safety in removing the offense and the ability to hurt further, but never to abandon them, Always to provide a way for them to be able to come back. And so somehow you have to reach out. You live into those Christ moments where you go beyond yourself to constantly reach out. Verse 18, truly I tell you whether you, what you, bind, <laughs> this is a crazy verse and we have so misused this in the church. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We've used this for our own control. God, we, get, we agree, let's say it and let's go, right? Like God's gonna give us whatever we want. Uh-uh. When you get together with another person, you discern the heart of God, you pray about that, and God's gonna give you direction on what you need to do. Verse 19, again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Pam, can we agree that we need like a new car, right? So let's ask, it's gonna be given, nah, it's not what he's talking about, right? There is a connection and an understanding of community that he gives us in the next verse, and then we're gonna close this whole thing out. He says in verse 20, For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. And so if you'll give me the ability just to bring you through this thought, I think it's worth the price of admission today. I'm telling you, this is is unbelievable. With that verse 20, in chapter 18, Matthew has established for us one of the most amazing truths in our scripture. Verse 20, where two or three or two or more are gathered in my name, I am there among them. And here's what I want you to hear. Community, community is the gift that God inhabits. God chooses the connection of believers to reveal himself and to be present to. What does this mean? This means that if you sit down for coffee with another believer, it's never just you and that other believer. It's always you and that other believer and the presence of God that's there. Why is this important when you think of the context of chapter 18? Because in a community of believers, if this is where God shows up, then unresolved conflict, abuse of power differences, despising one another, unchecked offenses, lack of forgiveness, no regard for the lost, abuse of the least of these, then I want you to know those things cannot be tolerated. Why? Because they are not the heart of God. Verse 14, the will of the Father is that not one of these little ones is lost. And so if we don't have a heart for a loss, the lost, we do not have the heart of the Father. Verse 35, the desire of the Father is we forgive from the heart. If we're not able to forgive, guess what? We don't have the heart of the Father. And so doesn't it make sense that if we consider ourselves to be a community of believers, then the community should resemble the one in whom we believe. Community is the gift that God inhabits. And so let me close out with this. What does this mean for us? We must, we have to recapture the understanding and the power of community. If we truly knew what it means to be present to another believer and have the presence of God there with us, it changes the way we think about everything. You know, when you're sitting with someone and they're truly broken and they're hurting and you're looking at them and you don't know what to say, guess what? You don't have to know what to say because the God of creation is sitting there with you. And the God of creation will bring out of that conversation and out of your heart the ability to love, to comfort, to nurture, and to stand alongside that person. If we truly understood and could capture the awareness of what community is all about and the presence of God, we would live different and we would would look different. Um, What does it mean for the way that we value and we care about one another? The way that I respect you the way that I respect your wife, how we're together in ministry, the boundaries that we set, how I care for your children. If I truly understood God and my connection to God and how I relate to you, it would govern the way that we are together, the very words that come out of our mouth, how we treat one another. We would live as a people that work towards reconciliation and forgiveness. It just speaks volumes to, to what God has called us to do. How um how we remove obstacles are we an obstacle? Have we caused obstacles for others? For me in my life, I've got to think about the way I teach, the words I say, what I do in public. Do I create a stumbling block for other people? I've got to change it. I've got to shift the way that I go about that. We all have to do that. And then how do we pursue those who are struggling? Do we look at them and go, "Ah, oh, it's just another mess up. Another person that fell off the wagon, don't worry, they'll eventually be back. Uh-uh. You go get them. You go reach out to them, you go find them, you love them, you bring them back. And finally, the last question, what is the heart work that we need to do? What forms of unforgiveness do we have inside of our lives that we've got to process through, that we've got to find so that God can offer us freedom and then give us a reach back into a community that so desperately needs it? When we consider this kind of work, that's what we're called to be as the body of Christ. Doing that level of work so that when people see us, they truly see the ethic of what God has called us to live into. And honestly, our role in community is to be Jesus to one another, to heal, to restore, to offer life, to forgive, to clear the obstacles, to pursue the struggling and to care for the family. And I would say to recognize the presence of God that's in our midst. That might be the single greatest thing that you get out of this message today is to truly recognize the presence of God that that is with us every time we get together. I promise you, it'll change the things you say. It'll change how you interact and how you respond to another person. And I would also say this, if you're here today and you're not a believer, then the sum total of your life is predicated on all the decisions that you make and everything that happens to you. What I know of this gospel message is that when you become a believer, you get all of God and and who God is. And the believers, if we're living into our best faith, to pull alongside you. And the best version of yourself is the best version of me because I'm going to do everything I can to walk alongside you. Not to mention the fact that the heartbreak and the things that you walk through, they're they're debts and they're things in your life that you'll never be able to reconcile. God did that work for us in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And today you can open up your heart and you can choose to believe in him. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. And God, I thank you for each and every person that's here, the work that you're doing inside of our hearts, the work that you're doing in this community. And it's just, it's crazy. God, the amount of people that are responding to the message and forgiveness and healing and and people that just want to see things look different in society and in this world as it pertains to the church. And God, I pray that you call us to that level of depth where we'll be willing to do the work and see you receive all the glory. God, I pray for those who maybe will open up their heart to believe for the first time today that God, they will experience the power of your Holy Spirit, not just a piece, but all of you living inside of them, guiding them and offering them hope. Lord, we love you. We try, and and I, God, I'll also say this, the people that are here that have been offended and hurt deeply, Lord, I pray that you will help us to work through the process of finding that healing. And for some of them, they may find themselves a few years from now right back in the world, offering healing to those who are stuck in the very same scenario because they've done the work and now they can go back and and bring others out. God, help us to do that work. We love you, we trust you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. I invite you, if you will, to stand. And as Kyle sings this final song, I pray that you'll allow it to speak to your heart. Um, Pastor Addie is over here on this side. She'd love to pray with you. I'll be on this side. I would love to pray with you. Thank you for your time today.
1: speed the hands of Christ, my King. Here in the hands of Christ, my King.
4: This morning's message is a, is a reminder of our identity. Yeah, our identity—who God has called us to be, who we are as a church. It's a statement of, of what we're called to do and who we're called to be, and. How incredible is it that we get to, in our community and those people that we interact with at work and at school, uh, here in this building, at Walmart and every place in between, that we get to be the representative of Jesus uh, to the world. For some of us, that's terrifying. uh, But for some of us, hopefully it's encouragement to continue to, to live as Christ did. Taking his example seriously and forgiving those people around us. Loving well. Loving ourselves well enough to, to offer that forgiveness and free of ourselves uh, from that sort of, of life. If you're new here with us, if this is your first Sunday, we would love to connect with you and find out how you can get further uh, connected to the ministries here. You can do so by joining us in the lobby in the Next Steps room right after the service. But before we leave, let's pray. God, we love you. We give you thanks uh, for this message, but God, we give you thanks for your son. The, uh, the truth about life that we find in him God, the representation and the example of a life well lived. God, how to love people around us, how to love ourselves enough to offer forgiveness to those people around. God, we pray that you would help us continue to be those people, cling hold to, to that identity of, of who we are in you, that we are your children, and that uh, we are your representatives to this community and to this world. So help us to, to carry that well. God, give us the humility of children to realize when we've been wrong and to offer that forgiveness that so desperately needs to be given. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. We love you all. Have a great week.